Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. This is something that does warrant looking at and is concerning. It would be interesting to get a bit more from the FCA around what they are looking to do in terms of getting their own house in order. There's more opportunity in many respects for the PRA to role model some of the behaviours that we're expecting from the industry. Today's episode is a deep dive into the culture of the UK's top financial watchdogs, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In it, I reveal that the FCA received 38 allegations of bullying, harassment, racism and discrimination taking place within its ranks in 2020, 2021 and 2022, while the PRA received three such reports from amongst its workforce over the same time period. Together with today's guests, we discuss the action the FCA and PRA should take as a result of these allegations, how news of these claims could affect regulators' efforts to police similar behaviour amongst finance workers, and plenty more in between. Penny Miller is a partner at law firm Simmons & Simmons and heads their global financial services regulatory practice. Christian Hunt's career includes stints as Chief Operating Officer at the PRA and Global Head of Compliance and Operational Risk at UBS Asset Management. Since 2019, he has run Human Risk, a consultancy and training firm specialising in advising company bosses on behavioural science, ethics and compliance, as well as a top-rated podcast of the same name. Hi, Christian. Hi, Penny. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hello. Good to be here. Lovely to be here. We're here today for a bit of a deep dive into the cultural dynamics at play at the UK's top financial services regulators. Of course, much has been said about the cultural characteristics, good and bad, of our various financial services institutions, in a large part due to ongoing and upcoming regulatory incentives for these firms to more closely monitor the factors influencing behaviour within their organisations. And we're going to get to those regulatory pressure points later on. But much less has been said about the culture within the regulators supervising financial services firms. So with that in mind, and to get a better sense of the culture at play within the UK's financial services regulators, I FOI'd the FCA to ask it to disclose the numbers of allegations of discrimination, bullying, harassment and racism that had been made by FCA employees against senior employees at the FCA in 2020, 2021 and to December 2022. For the purpose of the FOI, I defined senior employees at the FCA as anyone employed as a technical specialist, manager, head of department, director or 
executive director at the Markets Watchdog. And the FCA responded to let me know that it had received 30 such allegations against its senior employees over that time period. It further disclosed that of those 30 allegations, 14 had, it said, not been upheld. Four allegations had been withdrawn. It said three had been upheld, two partially upheld, and seven were, it said, ongoing. I also asked the FCA to disclose the numbers of allegations of discrimination, bullying, and harassment and racism that had been made by FCA employees against other FCA employees in 2020, 2021, and 2022. And the FCA let me know that there had been eight such allegations over that time period, but because of the small number and the risks of identifying individuals through disclosing further information, it was unable to tell me the outcomes of those allegations. But that is a total of 38 allegations of discrimination, bullying, harassment, and racism made by the FCA's roughly 4,000 employees employees against its other employees across all seniority levels. For comparison's sake, I sent the same FOI request to the Prudential Regulation Authority. The PRA declined to disclose how many allegations of discrimination, bullying, harassment and racism have been made by PRA employees against senior employees at the PRA in 2020, 2021 and 2022. And I defined senior employees for the purpose of the FOI as those reporting directly into the PRA chief, Sam Woods, as well as Sam Woods himself. The PRA did disclose, however, that its parent, the Bank of England, holds information on formal grievances raised by PRA employees. And in the time period requested, there was a total of three formal grievances relating to allegations of discrimination, bullying, harassment or racism made by PRA employees against other employees at the PRA. And it added that there were approximately 1,440 individuals working for the bank's PRA function. So a question to you, Penny, are these figures higher or lower than you expect? What interests you about the data? Yeah, the FCA, it's a huge organisation, isn't it? And in any large organisation, you're going to get these types of allegations. But I think it's a really interesting FOI request. And the 38 allegations against the FCA, I don't think the numbers are that dissimilar than in other organisations. They are the regulator. And in light of the standing that they have, one might expect less. And the other one that's interesting is that comparison. Comparison there. I know it's not like for like, and you've explained that really well. But I think that the fact that there are 10 times the allegations we're seeing against the FCA than the PRA is an interesting one. And there is anecdotal evidence we see as well, some more general disgruntlement within the FCA in terms of just morale and that type of thing. We saw some of the strikes, didn't we, happening. Those types of things are perhaps indicative of not everyone being too happy in their roles there. And that was in relation to the new FCA chief executive, Nikola Rathi, and he joined and he wanted to restructure the FCA, streamline it, make it a more data-focused regulator, and that required changes to the resourcing. And also he implemented a change to the way in which FCA employees were paid, which was seen to be controversial internally, and that led to the strike actions that you've referenced. Christian, anything else that has jumped out at you in the data? So in the face of it, the numbers don't look good, but it's also worth bearing in mind. First off, it's very unlikely you're going to ever get those numbers down to zero, just simply because it's very easy to make complaints at the regulator. The one thing they have sorted out are the processes they expect firms that they supervise to have in place are something they definitely have in place and our people are encouraged to use. So I would say it may be relatively easier to make a complaint at the regulator than it may be in other places, both culturally, but also practically. So I don't think those numbers are ever going to go down to zero. 
zero. And one of the things you might think about is to say, well, look, at a time when staff are disgruntled, perhaps it's not surprising that they take advantage of a channel that's obviously available to them. And they also know that the regulator has to act on them, possibly in a way that it might not happen at other firms. It's also worth thinking about the nature of employment. There aren't really that many competing propositions if you are somebody that wants to work at the regulator. And so what you may find is that in a normal firm, you say, well, I don't like it here. I'm going to go work somewhere else. And therefore, I'm not going to raise a complaint. And actually, if I'm at a regulator, I don't really have a competing proposition available to me. So maybe I will. And so it doesn't surprise me that some of those numbers might be higher than we would expect. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not suggesting that they're all vexatious, but I think that there is a narrative there that could lead you to conclude that it might be expected that numbers could be higher at the regulator than other places. All of that said, I think it's a great question that you've asked. And my gut reaction is that is higher than I would expect it to be. Okay, that's really interesting. And introducing another comparison into the conversation, an FOI from Financial News published in 2019 found that just under 30 cases of bullying and harassment have been investigated at the FCA internally in the three years between 2016 and 2019. And that was in contrast to just seven instances in the preceding three years to 2016. And there were just two cases investigated between 2009 and 2012. And that was then called an explosion of complaints. And the disclosure of that FOI data prompted the then FCA chief Andrew Bailey to be quizzed by MPs on the matter. I did ask the FCA to clarify how the data provided to me could be broken down by type of allegation, but they weren't able to respond within the 20-day deadline and are planning to get back to me by mid-March on that. Any comments to add on that further comparison? As the regulator, you ought to be setting the tone for the industry. It's very, very difficult for you to turn around to banks and say, you need to get your house in order when you are perceived to have a problem. And I think perception is really important here. And therefore, all the things I've said about well, maybe that we could expect the numbers to be higher than we might do elsewhere. None of that excuses the fact that there is clearly a problem here. And clearly, if things are getting worse, then I think that's not the sign of a healthy organization. And so we have to be very careful when we think about people coming forward. If we get better at encouraging it, we're going to get more numbers out of it. So it's dangerous just to say, just because the number of complaints have gone up, automatically things are getting worse because there may be other factors at play. But what I would point to and say, it is deeply worrying from the perspective of just the optics. The reason you're asking the question doesn't look great that a regulator has increasing numbers of these things. And clearly that upward trend is not something you would want to see going forward. So with the backdrop that we all know, what we've seen in the public domain and some of the stories about the culture that is there, there is clearly a challenge that needs addressing. That comparator probably paints things in a more negative light than it might be. I don't know if this was the first time they'd revealed the numbers, I might come to a different view. But my gut instinct is that this is something that does warrant looking at and is concerning. Yeah, I would agree. The numbers, as you say, are a bit stark, aren't they? And we don't really know why they've gone up. And I suppose one might say, perhaps there's a better speak up culture in some ways, but we just don't know. So it would be good to hear more, wouldn't it? And in a recent speech on culture given by the FCA's COO, Emily Shepard, Shepard said the FCA's role as a regulator is to lead by example. And when Shepard appeared on Following the Rules in January, I asked her to elaborate on what the regulator was doing to lead by example in that cultural context. She said then that it had implemented a version of the UK's accountability regime for senior managers at banks and funds within the FCA, and that employees' performance measures have been reworked to ensure everyone was measured in relation to their personal performance and to FCA diversity inclusion metrics as well as against its strategic goals. Christian, based on the FOI data, what changes do you think the FCA needs to implement to walk the talk on cultural standards in the finance sector? 
the key bit here is identifying what's going on and to really work out what are the drivers here and say to yourself, look, are there trends that we can see? Are these isolated incidents of individuals or do we have a bigger picture piece? Put it simply, is our incentive program calibrated in the right way. So are we promoting the right people? Are we hiring the right people? How are we looking at those sorts of issues? And so I would almost turn the supervisory lens that the FCA turns onto firms onto itself and say, look, how would we judge ourselves if we were to be a supervised firm? And of course, the standards will be slightly different because it's not a business in the traditional sense. So there'll be a different way of having to look at things. But bottom line here is they really need to just think and say, look, let's run the rule over ourselves in the way that we would do a firm that we were supervising. And see what that throws up. And then you might want to call in someone external to take a look at it, because I think it's very, very difficult based on the evidence that you've outlined, Lucy, to know exactly what it is that's the driver here. And so I'm loath to make recommendations about specific things they should do without looking at it. I do think it's an issue that senior management should be taking a focus on. I suspect the scrutiny that's on them about this is there. So I wouldn't want to necessarily come up with a prescriptive plan. And I guess that is the incentive behind Shepard's reference to the fact that they have implemented the senior managers and certification regime in internally insofar as they have designated senior management functions they have the SMF label to certain senior managers within the organization but you would want them to go further than that is that what you're saying yeah I don't think this is a slavishly apply what you apply to firms that you're regulating because the nature of risk taking is very different there isn't really the same sense of taking financial risk but clearly the consequences of the regulator getting things wrong has societal impact people are paid relatively good money by any societal standards to do their job and so I would absolutely go further than that and almost stress test it and say, look, okay, we need to be doing the absolute best that we can. And that's why I say, I don't think you can get down to zero. Then it's ever going to happen. But let's look at it and say, we recognize we've got a trend that's unhelpful here. And let's try and analyze the root cause of that and have some difficult conversations. Okay. And obviously all this comes as the FCA is in the midst of attempting to more closely address non-financial misconduct within the financial services sector. And non-financial misconduct relates to behavior of regulated financial services staff taking place outside of the day job. Representatives of the FCA have previously said that they saw non-financial misconduct and the poor culture it leads to as the key root cause of recent major conduct failings within the industry. And the FCA is also in the process of implementing its new consumer duty, which are a set of rules intended to encourage financial services firms to put their clients' needs first. The FCA COO said in November that the consumer duty was one of the biggest policies that the FCA had unveiled in recent years that will do the most to address conduct. And she also said then that the FCA planned to encourage firms to analyze their culture and how that affects their conduct and that firms should encourage the right environment to develop for employees to speak up more. Penny, how effective do you think the FCA's efforts have been in promoting good cultural outcomes in the financial services sector? How effective do you think this focus on non-financial misconduct and the requirements set to be implemented through the consumer duty will be? So three points there. The first is on the SMCR angle, that allocation of individual responsibility has been effective. We've seen in the POA feedback statement, December 2020, 96% of the functions thought it had brought about a positive change. It was much clearer who was accountable and what they were accountable for. So that level of responsibility and articulation and change in financial services has been successful. I think where it's been difficult is in relation to that non-financial misconduct and the continuing lack of guidance. So we have a lot of dicta 
coming from the regulator around what constitutes non-financial misconduct and that it should be conduct will breach and therefore reported to the regulator. But we don't really have any detail in the guidance or in the rules about what that actually means. So firms are spending a significant amount of time trying to work out where that regulatory perimeter is. And the French case is very interesting there. That's an up tribunal case which upheld the FCA's decision to ban somebody for non-financial misconduct. But it's a very indicative case of the issues. This was at the extreme end of behaviours that I would suggest most people would not want happening in our industry. Mr. Frencham had a criminal conviction in relation to some horrendous conduct in relation to sexual grooming of a child. And the FCA said, because of that criminal conviction, that person is not fit and proper to work in the financial services industry. And the upper tribunal said, that's not enough. You have to make a link between that person's criminal conviction and their ability to work in financial services, which the tribunal said they did not make. Now, they still upheld the determination of the FCA because the person had lied and generally was more dishonest. And that was the piece that linked it together. But the criminal conviction in and of itself was not sufficient. So if you imagine Imagine that's the level of scrutiny we have in the market when you're thinking about other things such as sexual harassment, bullying, things that happen outside the workplace more broadly, drinks, parties and that sort of thing. Whatever our moral view on this and whatever our personal views on this, there is still a very big difficulty in making that link without any further guidance from the regulator. And on the consumer duty, we're still bedding down the SMCR, we're still bedding down the conduct rules, particularly for those majority of firms that only came into the regime in 2019. So now with that consumer duty over on top. It's almost like firms are having to then relook again at what they've been doing without any particular guidance and spending all the time, again, without anything more concrete that's coming through in the consumer duty. So firms are in full throes of absolutely implementing it and understanding that cultural change. But in the absence of anything more specific, that's going to remain a challenge. Okay. And you mentioned the SMCR and we should mention that is the regulatory construct under which the FCA can police non-financial misconduct. The senior management certification regime has a requirement within it for individuals that are subject to the rules to be deemed to be fit and proper to do those roles. And it's question marks raised around that and other aspects of the rules which enable the FCA to enforce non-financial misconduct within the industry. From my perspective, the FCA has gone a bit quieter on non-financial misconduct in recent months. Would you agree with that? And secondly, do you link that to the fact that the Frencham cases made them realise they might have perhaps bitten off more than they can chew here? So from a supervisory perspective, they have been clear they are looking at a suggested link between a negative conduct and regulatory breach and the fact that that may indicate bad culture in a firm. So where we see, for example, those firms who are engaging with their supervisors, perhaps self-reporting issues that they're seeing in their own firm, that's when we're seeing the regulators engage further to look and perhaps probe more broadly into the culture of that particular firm or that particular team within a firm. But the enforcements will tend to take longer than they have done in the past and so there may be enforcements that are going on but because individuals tend to fight more the enforcements will take longer but there will be enforcements going through and I suspect that the FCA would like there to be one around the non-financial misconduct so that they can give the industry some further steer about where their expectations are. But again, in light of Frencham, I'll be wanting to be very careful about being taken to the upper tribunal from an employment perspective. I'd rather that we had the dicta up front rather than firms go through enforcement. And they have said that they are going to publish guidance around non-financial misconduct, potentially the diversity and inclusion paper in Q2, but it may 
be delayed. In light of the Edinburgh reforms, which we heard announced at the end of last year, in terms of getting Brexit done to show the lessening of the red tape and overhauling some aspects of the regulatory perimeter, they have suggested they'll be looking to review and potentially amend the senior manager and certification regime. We do not yet know what that looks like. So we are still a little bit up in the air as to whether that guidance is going to come and whether that will be part of the reforms that they've announced. And because the non-financial misconduct element is something that is a challenge and will require more guidance, clarification, that may be an area that we see a bit of reining back. To the extent that they've got firms setting up here who they may want to make that more simple in light of wanting to make the UK a more competitive environment. So perhaps the number of forms that people have to fill in, the number of senior managers perhaps, and then this non-financial misconduct, which isn't yet in the rules, there's a potential that that's then taken outside the regulatory perimeter. So taken outside the conduct will breach framework, given it's not in there a specific way at the moment. Okay, so potentially some fairly significant changes to come there. And Christian, how do you think the FCA should alter its messaging, if at all, to the financial services sector on these two regulatory initiatives in light of the FCA data that we're discussing today? So this is really, really tough. And the first thing is this sort of issue doesn't lend itself to being neatly codifiable. We can pick extreme cases. We can say, well, obviously, that's the bad thing. If we go back to the co-op case a few years ago, when the stories came out about the individual involved there, who was involved in various sexual incidents involving younger people, There was drug taking, whole series of sort of scandals. And the gentleman involved was nicknamed the Crystal Methodist. And lots of questions obviously asked and saying, well, how is it acceptable to approve this person? How are they ever in that position? And so we'll take these extreme examples and say, well, here's a really clear. But there are lots of cases that sit in that gray area. Black and white stuff's easy. The gray area is the challenging bit here. And so one of the issues is that as they're looking at the backdrop of coming under more pressure, so a government that wants them to potentially ease up to encourage more business, we need to make regulation simpler. All of that points in the opposite direction of grappling with this issue, which by default isn't simple and it's not straightforward and it's not easily codifiable. And there is a lot of gut feel required for this. For supervisors, it's very, very difficult. You sit there and say, well, I don't like the direction of travel here, but which particular rule can I point towards if I want to put pressure onto the firm? And those rules don't really exist. And so if we go back to the governor of the Bank of England raising their eyebrows at something as a subtle hint that firms shouldn't do it, we've moved away from that world and are much more now where firms are ready to fight things and say, well, where does it say I can't do that? And so if you've got political pressure pointing a direction to make things easier for firms to come and do business in the UK, make regulation lighter touch, that makes dealing with these topics particularly challenging. And so I think the FCA is sitting in a really difficult position, which is on the one hand, it probably knows and wants to pursue some of these issues. We know that at the heart of failures in the industry and the societal problems we've had have come from culture within the industry, the way businesses are run. And so we know that that needs to be dealt with. And that's the FCA mandate to try and to sort some of these issues out amongst the other responsibilities it has. But that becomes really challenging in a world where you don't have the specific things to point towards. So they're sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't. Because on the one hand, they've made a lot of noise about these issues issues quite rightly. And therefore, the question will be, well, is your own house in order? And so you lose that moral authority if your own house isn't perceived to be in order. On the other hand, you've got less of the things you can point towards to get the industry to fix it. So I think this is really tough for them. And I've got a huge amount of sympathy. And that's why they need to sort out their own piece, because the limited moral authority that you might have is going to be denuded. If somebody can point, how are we supposed to do this when you haven't sorted it out in your own shop? And so that's the challenge facing.
using them. So I think, unfortunately, this is going to make their job harder in regulating some of these issues until that the political background is there to really allow them to have a bit of backbone in this space. That's going to be challenging. But if you don't sort them out in-house, then I think it's going to be even harder for you. So if I put my previous hat on the regulator, I say this is making their lives that little bit tougher. Okay. How would you advise the FCA to get their house in order? So I think you got to remember two things. One is that there is a difference sometimes between optics and reality, and you have to manage both of those things. And one of the challenges they face is there's increasing transparency, right? So organizations used to be able to do things secretly behind the scenes. We have now seen that people are very willing to leak what you know, the reality of the world within companies. So they have to focus on two things. One is getting it right and making sure that the issues are genuinely solved. But secondly, being seen to do that. And those might be two slightly different things. And that's where I come back to, I think, just apply the same lens that you see being applied to the industry that's there, because that's what's going to be applied to you. And so that may require them to take independent advice, but I would really be running it through a press lens and saying, what's not going to look good in public? If this were to come out and say to yourselves, okay, we need to fix the problem. That's very clear. But we also need to make sure that we seem to fix the problem and that we go through and we possibly go the extra mile in being seen to take these things seriously. Now, I think with the backdrop of some of the challenges they've got around pay, for example, that becomes a lot harder. Because if you have challenge with antagonism to put loosely between employees and employer, then the likelihood of complaints coming forward, the likelihood of people making an issue out of something that they might not, if they were happy otherwise with their employment, is increased. So it's really going down and thinking very, very carefully around, well, what does this look like? And involves looking at everything from incentive programs, the way we communicate, the way we treat our staff, what we ask them to do. And there are challenges facing all sorts of organizations nowadays around when do we require people to be in the office and when we will allow them to work from home. And the regulator is not immune to those challenges either, in that as we look at what employment in the 21st century post the pandemic means, there are lots of moving parts there. And so they're going to have to start to think about things. And one of the questions I've got is, should we be looking at paying regulators more? Now, I know in a world where there's cost of living crisis and all sorts of challenges, that doesn't play particularly well. But if you're asking your staff to be exemplary and go beyond, then maybe we need to start thinking about, are we hiring the right people? Are we rewarding them in the right way? And so the fundamental employment proposition of the regulator may be something that they need to look at as well. So you're suggesting that they should pay people more to get a higher quality of individual, and therefore you think that there would be perhaps a drop-off in allegations such as the ones that we're discussing? Well, I don't want to push that too far because clearly there comes a time where if people are just doing it for the money, then that becomes problematic. But there seem to be some hygiene factors there around the way people are remunerated that I think really need to be looked at. And one of the challenges the regulators have in general is that they're under huge amounts of political pressure to be seen to be efficient and effective and keep their costs down. But one of the bits that's fascinating that I found is whenever I speak to firms, no firm in the industry is complaining about the fees that they have to pay. And in many cases, the message I got back was that we'd happily pay higher fees to have higher quality regulation. And that didn't mean you know less stringent regulation. That meant making sure that you've got the right people who can understand our business models and interact with us. Now, the political challenge there is that obviously if regulatory costs increase and the firms pay for those, ultimately the theory goes consumers end up paying for it. But what I think is interesting is that firms are currently 
spending a ton of money in working out what the regulator is expected of them. So all of these points that we've talked about, where there are gaps, where there's a lack of clarity, that costs the firms money in having to respond to that because they need extra people to work out what the rules might be saying. If we had a regulatory system that was clearer for firms to operate, actually, that might not increase the cost to consumers. But that's a really, really difficult argument to make in the current climate. So for me, I would be saying that we ought to be looking at it and saying it is probably worth investing in regulation if we want to solve the problem. That goes totally against the narrative of let's make things as cheap as possible. But I do think if you don't spend money on these things, you get these gray areas. You possibly get people that aren't necessarily best suited to regulation in it. The regulator has to cut corners. And so that becomes more problematic. So you kind of get what you pay for. And therefore, I would be saying it's worth looking and saying, is it good value for money? And the conclusion of that shouldn't be that we just necessarily reduce the amount of money we spend on regulation. Maybe we should spend a little bit more. OK, interesting. And there has been a number of question marks raised around the FCA's funding in light of Brexit, because obviously the UK's departure from the European Union has meant that the UK has had to rethink how it regulates, whereas previously sections of the financial services sector were regulated by EU regulators. The more often than not, post-Brexit, that job has landed on the FCA's shoulders and yet their funding hasn't increased and that has happened at the same time as they have had a new CEO who has implemented a series of changes that has upset the staff in part because those changes related to staff pay and the staff didn't feel that was adequately communicated and they didn't agree with the changes themselves so you've got almost a perfect storm at the FCA or have done over the previous few years where they've got an increasing workload political pressure to do the job well funding not increasing and a disgruntled staff as well from what I'm understanding what you're saying is that all that could have contributed to an increase in allegations of bullying and harassment, racism and discrimination, and to increase pay that might do something to redress that balance. Well, so I never want to excuse bad behaviour because we have to recognise there are certain things that are unacceptable. But we know that if you put people under huge amounts of pressure, that that can make things challenging. And so I'm not saying you pay them more money and they'll be better behaved, right? We've got lots of examples from financial services where it's proven to not be the case. But I think if you put people under huge amounts of pressure, asking them to deliver competing objectives that will require them to make sacrifice and make compromises, that can be quite difficult. And I do think that senior people at the regulator have been under a huge amount of scrutiny. They're being asked to do a heck of a lot, as are the junior staff, by the way. The organization as a whole is under a lot of pressures. When we look at the transparency around what is going wrong in the industry, there is greater transparency than ever before. Consumers are able to complain much more easily. We get much more visibility when firms are doing things they shouldn't do. So as we look at all of that, add the Brexit factors in that you've talked about. This is an organisation that is being asked to do a heck of a lot with not very much. And while the senior staff, none of them could be said to be on the poverty line. As you go further down the organisation, the amount of responsibility you're asking people to take, the work pressures that are on them, and the deal that was put before them when they joined in the first place. And remember that people aren't joining the regulators necessarily to pay tons of money. They're doing it for a variety of different reasons, to get some experience, to add something back to society. But there is a balancing act there. And at some point, when you start to push them too far, it's not your standard relationship that you would have in another organisation. And so if if you start to chip away what are perceived to be the reasons why people want to come and start removing some of those, start adding a whole lot of extra work, it becomes challenging. And then at the senior levels, put more pressure on them. That is bound to feed through. And so they are in a very, very difficult position. That's why I come back to investing more money. I don't necessarily mean paying everybody at the regulator more money. What I mean is giving them the systems and the wherewithal and a clearer mandate and also some air cover. There's a lot of pressure that comes on from parliament. 
And I'm not saying that MPs shouldn't scrutinise what the regulator does, but it's also their responsibility to support them and to give them a clear direction of travel. And if there's one thing we've seen in the political arena, it's not always been clear how many prime ministers have we had in the past few months. And any change in political direction has an impact on the regulator, even if it's not specifically a regulatory point, there are going to be pressures on them to respond to things. So it is a little bit of a pressure cooker environment where these pressures don't help the things that we've talked about. None of that, of course, excuses the basics, but we have to recognise that that's going to be a driving factor in it. Okay. The majority of this conversation is focused on the FCA, the UK Markets Watchdog. Is there anything that you think the PRA should seek to address in relation to its efforts to promote good culture within its ranks? The Bank of England is a bank, ultimately. And so if you wanted to say which of the two regulators is part of an institution that is closer to the industry that is supervising, the answer would be the PRA as part of the Bank of England. And if you looked historically at the way the Bank of England has set up, I'm not there at the moment, so I can't comment about what it's like to be there, but working within it, it used to have a very hierarchical feel. Just the architecture of the buildings, some of the titles, some of the processes, and sometimes that might not always have encouraged speaking up various other dynamics. And Mark Carney, when he came in, made a huge amount of changes And I have no reason to believe those changes haven't moved on. And so it's very important for an institution like that to make sure that it is reflecting the desires and needs of modern Britain. It talks a lot about its societal responsibilities and they need to make sure that they reflect that. So there's more opportunity in many respects for the PRA to role model some of the behaviours that we're expecting from the industry in a way that possibly is harder for the FCA because of the nature of its business. But the same thing should apply. And I think it's a great point to look and say, actually, they need to be a bit more in lockstep with the the FCA when it comes to this stuff. Because the reason you have two separate regulators is clearly you want to make sure that somebody's focusing on conduct, somebody's programming prudential pieces. So you might say, well, what's the prudential piece got to do with conduct and behavior? Well, the answer is one, conduct issues become prudential issues when they're bigger. But the second thing is there isn't a conflict of interest from a prudential perspective with making sure that your organizations are well run. And so this is not an example where I think the PRA needs to flex its muscles in a separate way to be seen to be a separate regulator. There's nothing inconsistent with having strong prudential governance over the industry with the strong conduct piece. So this is a good example where you'd say, look, it's in our interests to make sure that they can speak with a similar voice on this one topic. And there's nothing inconsistent there. And so it'd be helpful to have a similar model across the two regulators in terms of the way you speak about it, in terms of your reaction to it. It's a little bit like having two parents. You want to make sure that you're speaking with a similar voice on this sort of issue, particularly where you've got those gray areas. There isn't necessarily a specific rule you want to pin it to, two sets of raised eyebrows to use the traditional terminology might be more effective than one. I think the same for those firms who are dual regulated. We might want to see them joining up in some of the dicta to support where the FCA is coming from. So where non-financial misconduct remains high on the agenda and remains something that is seen as potentially creating regulatory breaches for firms, perhaps the PRA to be on the same page there as the FCA and perhaps promulgating further dicta. Because obviously from a regulatory she breach perspective that potentially then affects the prudential nature of what the PRA is doing. If a firm fails because of a bad culture, then that's obviously going to be of critical relevance to PRA. Okay. And anecdotally, do you get a sense that that interaction between the two on conduct has happened or there is a drive to do it? Yeah. When I was there, there was representation on each other's boards. So there's lots of interaction between the two. Supervisors speak to each other about 
what's happening in the firms. And there are similar operational discussions that go on between the two. They'll be having lots of conversations because they're both facing similar pressures from the government. So it would be strange if they weren't comparing notes as to how they were managing that experience. And I think exchanges of best practice and ideas flow between them. And there are staff flows between the two organizations as well, which is healthy. So it's not as if they're operating entirely in a silo. And clearly the PRA as a subset of the Bank of England is in a slightly different position to the FCA, which has a standalone organization, but there's a lot they can learn from each other. My mechanics are absolutely there. So I suppose it's whether it's worth a more concerted effort to align on that particular point that may well be happening. It's perhaps just not as visible as it might be. So there's value in making that more visible than it is currently? I think so. Okay. Lastly, a question to both of you. What action points or key takeaways should listeners remember from this episode? I would say two things. The first one is that this whole topic of human behavior and where are the lines between personal lives and work All of this stuff is very, very challenging, but we have to recognize that those challenges, we can't just wish them away. And so regulators are going to have to put themselves into positions where they're looking at things that might, on the face of it, seem extracurricular. What's that got to do with my day job? Well, human beings don't suddenly transform from being one sort of person when they're at home to another at workplace. They can be different, but there is that overlap there. And so this gray area is going to continue. It's going to continue to be challenging and it's going to continue to be difficult. And expecting simple answers to complex problems is going to leave us forlorn. We need to just recognize it's difficult, it's challenging, and that's going to require some courage on the regulatory side, but also recognition from the firms that they're not always going to get the straightforward answers they want. It's not always going to be a case of black and white regulation. The second thing is, and I speak with sympathy for my former colleagues, is to say, I think regulation is really hard, right? We can look at the, why are they not doing this? Why are they not that? We've talked about pressure points that the regulators are under, and it is worth recognizing. Of course, we need to hold them to account, but it is not the easy job that we might like to think it is with these competing pressures and challenges, they're going to get things wrong. And we have to recognize the mistakes are going to happen. We absolutely have to learn from those mistakes and we want to stop the big ones from being made. But regulation is not an easy thing, particularly with the sort of industry we're talking about. That's actually a point that Emily Shepard made when she appeared on Following the Rules. She did say a little bit more understanding from the market that we can only do so much. We try our best, but we do, will get things wrong would be appreciated. Yeah, a couple of points there on the consumer duty, given it is a whole another 400 pages of regulation and that firms are having to implement now. I suppose the FCA just being clearer about changes they are going to be expecting there, given that we still do have a a lot of lack of clarity here. We have a lot of grey already. So ideally, we don't make more grey because firms are very focused on that now. It's important to put that into context and to get as much from the regulators as we can, really, about what their expectations are. That's a live issue for firms to be thinking about in this context and thinking about how the non-financial misconduct will feed into their implementation programmes. And then the other one, just to where we started, really, on the FOI, it would be interesting to get a bit more from the FCA around what they are looking to do in terms of addressing and getting their own house in order, perhaps in an environment, noting it's extremely challenging, but noting where they are expecting firms to be upholding a higher standard. Okay, well, this has been a really thought-provoking and interesting conversation, and perhaps I can get you back on following the rules in a few years' time with an updated FOI to see where we're at then. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. In response to the topics raised in this podcast episode, an FCA spokesperson said, Our colleagues are passionate about our work and making the FCA the best organisation it can be. We have a culture where people feel they are able to speak up and raise issues if they feel they haven't been treated correctly. As the stats show, where concerns are raised, we investigate them thoroughly and fairly. The spokesperson added, Non-financial misconduct is unacceptable and we will continue to raise it as an issue with firms. A spokesperson for the PRA declined to comment. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty.
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.